Ignition sequence start. Six, five, four, three, three, one, zero. All engine running. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. 32 minutes past the hour. Welcome to Rock City Podcast, and today we have a special guest, Mr. Nathan Rigby. What's up, buddy? How hey you guys. doing? Hey, how's it going? Good. Good, good. Why don't you give us a little overview of where you're from, yep. first off, and uh, uh, where you work at now, okay. and of your position. Sure. Um, so I am from Madison, Alabama, which is that small town surrounded by Huntsville here <laughs> in North Alabama. Um, born and raised here, and... Um, I work at NASA as a uh, aerospace engineer, um, primarily working in a group, working on SLS, but uh, doing some other stuff too. So, alrighty, and uh, can you give us a kind of clar- clarity where with the contractor? So a lot of people here in Huntsville, when I talk to them and they say they work with NASA, mm-hmm. they're actually working as contractors for NASA or under companies and their contractors right. for NASA. Right. Um, can you tell us the difference between that because you actually yeah, or a civil servant working for NASA. And um, do you work closely with the contractors? Yeah, absolutely. So um, I started off as a contractor, so I came on the contract. And something else interesting about the contract is uh, the contractor has subcontractors. Okay. So um, one of the main contracts out there, there's several that NASA has, but uh, particularly NASA Marshall there for their engineering has one called the ESCA contract, the Jacobs Engineering um is the main contractor for and then they have subcontractors so that can be um uh anywhere from let's see erc uh which is another company that has does contracting uh the one i worked for was called qualis um and so um it didn't you didn't really get to choose which subcontract you subcontractor you worked for when you applied for a job it was kind of um already preset if you will. So I came on as a contractor, um, working for Qualys as a sub to Jacobs on the ESCA contract. And I worked on that for about a year and a half, a year, year and a half, and then um, switched over to civil service, so left contracting. But uh, the way it works out there is um, NASA has our contractors uh, provide support uh, for different tasks, and they write different task orders and whatnot. Um, contracting officers can go over the details of that a lot better than I can, but we work hand-in-hand hmm. hand with our contractors. Um, so essentially no difference between a civil servant and a contractor besides where your paycheck comes from is kind of the way it feels. Um, you work with them. You're, you can have a boss or you know a um, supervisor who's a contractor or a civil servant. There's no hard set rules. Um, there's some positions that may be set, um, but uh, they essentially work hand in hand uh, with each other, and it's a really great um, environment. Uh, the only thing is, like uh, when it comes down to like government shutdowns and things like that, yeah. then each group is affected differently. Okay. But otherwise, um, they work together. Yeah. Okay. And um, you said, I want to apologize, you said you're an aerospace engineer. I thought you told me systems engineering is where you're specifically at right now. Right. Yeah. So official title is aerospace engineering. Okay. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, 
you know, it's just a matter of semantics, I guess you could say. But um, prim a bunch of the work I do, you could consider systems engineering. Uh, when I came on as a contractor, I was a simulation systems engineer. Um, and I essentially do the same work now, but just under a different title. Uh, so, yeah, how, it's how they code the different jobs. Okay, gotcha. Yeah, because I was about to ask you uh, about system engineering more and yeah, pros absolutely. and cons of that. Yeah. Because recently had a, had a guest on who's studying systems engineering and kind of wants to be in the same shoes you are, mm -hmm. um, working on space stations. Uh, what are some of the pros and cons to your position? Uh, so systems engineering and in my position in general uh, is is uh, got a lot of pros, I think, than, uh, than cons. That's good. Um, but uh, they... Um, they get to work with a lot of different aspects, at least in my area of the rocket. So system engineering is integrating all these different sub elements, right? So um, we have our booster folks and they're mainly specialized maybe in their area of boosters. We have our engines, we have our MPS main propulsion system. And so those guys are, you know, very technical in their area, but somebody's got to put it all together. And so that is where systems engineering comes in. Um, they also have to be on the front end to define those requirements because we have several different contractors maybe working on that project. So for SLS, we may have Boeing, you know, working on the core stage. We have um, what used to be ATK, Orbital ATK, working on the boosters, uh, Lockheed Martin working on Orion. And so all those have to work together. So it makes it... Um, your job more interesting because you get to see a lot more different aspects. Uh, if you're very technical and you like getting maybe more into just your one area, you know, you want to just study solid propellants, then that may be more of a con with systems engineering because, you know, you're not going to be doing as in-depth technical um, information than you are kind of integration sort of thing. And this is, this is in general for my area. Um, and so um, the systems engineering, too, you know, they, they um, we have a dedicated systems engineering group. They do a lot of documentation for us, uh, but they're really great. And working with all the different teams, we have to, you know, constantly collaborate and talk with all the other NASA centers um, over teleconferences and whatnot. And oh, wow. so that's really important for the systems engineering background. And then also, you know, learning is systems engineering, the... Um, design lifecycle process. Uh, NASA has, you know, what they call the Bible of systems engineering, uh, but it's basically a booklet that defines their systems engineering process hmm. um, where they go through peer design reviews, critical design reviews. These are all these different phases that these projects go through. And so the, uh, the Army, you know, DOD does the same sort of life cycle for these projects. Um, but it's, you know, you learn that in school and it's really neat to go and apply that in your work area. Um, it may be a little bit different because on a huge project like SLS, you may be in one phase, you know, for a couple of years. You know, it's not, whereas if the senior design project I had, you know, we had, we were in, you know, a phase of the project for two weeks. But obviously it was a smaller, less cr safety critical sort of project. Right. Um, but, uh, that, and so that's another thing is systems engineering can kind of work in different areas. So you're not very limited, whereas maybe with aerospace engineering, you're kind of more limited with your choices of jobs. Yeah. So if you like where you're at, then, you know, that's great. But if maybe you start somewhere and you don't, then systems engineering allows you to kind of move to other areas. 
Um, I got my, I'm a mechanical engineer, um, but um, they, you know, it was kind of the same thought process for me is that I didn't really know if I wanted to stay just with aerospace. And I knew mechanical engineers could also do aerospace work. They could also do systems engineering, um, you know, maybe electrical. Um, they do a little bit of that. So that's kind of why I ended up doing that. But, um, you know, like I said, maybe maybe con would be, um, you know, you don't get as technically down and specific. Deep. Exactly. Yeah. 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 So. But you're over you're more like a project manager kind of style over different things. Um, in a way. In a way. Yeah. yeah. So the group I work with mm -hmm. is uh, and the branch I work in is um, Mission and Fault Management, MNFM. And so. Um, it's also known as integration, integrated system health management. Um, it's kind of changed names a couple times, but um, all of our, you know, devices or spacecraft or whatever are, have to have um, fault management built in, and then of course mission management. So that's that's your nominal uh, operations that the rocket's going to perform, and then um, you also have your off-nominal situations that you have to handle. And so being a systems engineering uh, kind of uh, outlook will allow you to integrate with all these other groups to have the best um, capabilities and knowledge to be able to have that fault management, mission management be the best it can be. Um, our group has different integrated teams or integrated design teams are what we call them. And so what they do is we have a group that's for MPS and they work with the MPS folks but they also maybe work with the flight software also and then they come together to form these you know designs algorithms and so we also have a booster folks and so they have an integrated design team too so each of those groups are going to have these design teams filled with several people and they need that systems engineering to kind of integrate everybody um, it's so it's not necessarily managing it per se like a project manager would yeah, okay. but um you do have a lot to manage on your own plate yeah wow and so specifically uh you told me that you work with the sls yes. in the artemis program yes and how exactly do you do that because that's exciting because that's the program that nasa is going to the moon back to the moon by right. 2024 that's right. the plan yes and uh it's exciting times it is it's absolutely exciting time we're all excited uh, there at NASA when we got that space policy directive and Vice President Pence came into town and um, right. uh, I think everybody was really excited to kind of have you know a date and uh, we, we'd already had a date but maybe something closer kind of get us going a little bit um, and so um, my group primarily like you mentioned works with SLS and so as I was kind of previously alluding to um, we handle the mission of fault management for SLS. So what does that mean? Um, well, what does the rocket have to do upon taking, you know, launch, liftoff? What does it need to do at booster set? So you have to have somebody say, hey, I need to, the flight computer to send this command to do this, X, Y, or Z. So maybe open a valve, close a valve. Uh, booster separation, make sure, you know, the boosters are separated, monitoring all your computers. And so that would be the mission nominally. Um, and so um, our group 
designs those algorithms that handle that. And so what I mean by that is, um, you know, we say, hey, during the mission, follow this um, design, you know, check this time, if this time is this, perform this action, close that valve, open that valve. If this pressure or this temperature is here, do that. And so we come up with that design and then we send it over to our flight software folks. The flight software folks actually write the code from our algorithm that will be on the flight computers, on the SLS. And so um, we work hand in hand with flight software folks because they need to understand the design, how we made it so that they program it correctly, uh, you know, as, as the design was intended. So that's, you know, part of teamwork integration there. And so um, they write the flight software code and then they come back and we revise the algorithm maybe however we need as we get more information. So that's the easy nominal stuff. And then we have the off nominal situations. So fault management. And fault management's a tricky situation. Um, what you don't think about too much is, you know, you don't want to have a false positive. So you don't want a situation where maybe a sensor tells you, hey, you know, this looks really bad. Maybe we should abort. And then you do and it turns out the sensor was bad. You know, yeah. you don't want that to happen. That's that's a lot of money. And so you want to be certain in those situations. And so you want to try and mitigate the most likely things, because as you add this fault management, you're adding complexity to the vehicle and adding more complexity is not always the best thing. Right. And so you want less complexity, you know, and, and um, better fault management, I, I guess you could say. But um so we look, we work with another group, uh, the SNMA, so safety and mission assurance folks, and mm -hmm. they do probability risk assessments, PRAs, and they have all these models and such, and they kind of assign, uh, in a way, like a probability of certain events happening. You know, we have certain requirements that the um, program imposes, so, you know, they can only have the probability of a loss of mission is only one in how many ever or loss of crew and so those are requirements that they have and so to mitigate that as much as possible we have our probability risk assessment folks and they come to us and they give us the most likely things that are that could happen and so we take a look at those and see what we can do to mitigate them wow. so that can be a lot of different things. You know, yeah. you got What's each subsystem. What's one of kind of the weirdest one? That the is weirdest like, one. I don't know. Oh, gosh. So we have... Most likely we, weird probability. We have kind of our, our set number of tests that we kind of we kind of do normally. So we'll mm -hmm. do like a, a left booster uh, case pressure burst. So basically a left booster exploding or a right booster exploding. Or the MPS... Mm, valves get stuck or an engine shut down early or the boosters failed to ignite at launch or the engines fail. so i don't know if i have a favorite one there's <laughs> ones that are the most complicated and maybe those are fun because you kind of do some digging down and trying to figure it out so those would probably be more of your avionics failures and so that would be maybe a battery goes bad and so there is redundancy built in, right? So we have more than one battery. We have more than one engine. We have more than one flight computer on board. So if one fails, we still have a backup. Yeah. You, you have to write the design on how to manage that. But um, let's say probably one of the more complicated ones is when you lose power and the power gets distributed to different 
electronics and different uh, valves and whatnot. And so seeing how that air propagates throughout the whole system and making sure that your design is doing the best it can to prevent anything worse from happening than maybe you losing power to those. And so it can come out in weird ways. You know, you look and you, you know, you go, well, I wasn't expecting to lose that device at that time, but let's take a look, you know, at the design and trace it down and kind of see, okay, well, this was connected to this and this was connected to that. So, you know, you can kind of make sure, okay, that is supposed to shut down. So we, we, we developed a, a series of tests, our group did, and so we, um, we work with the SIL, is what it's called. That's the System Integration Lab. There's several labs that they do this testing in here at Marshall. Um, the SIL is the, the big bad boy that we have where we're doing a lot of testing with right now, and that has actual hardware and the actual flight software inside, this, inside the facility. Mm. And so it's, it's not the actual hardware that will go on the rocket itself on SLS, okay. but it is equivalent. So, you know, pretend you got a production line going down and you, you get to go on the rocket and you, you're coming with me to get tested. <laughs> really? <laughs> so one, one person gets to do his one little, one little flight computer gets its glory and then the other one has to get tested to, to no end. But, um. What we do is we put our flight software, so that's testing our flight software design and algorithms on our flight computers. We hook it up with hardware. Now, obviously, we can't run with engines or boosters, so we have emulators do that. Okay. And so they provide data. They trick the sensors into thinking it's actually there. And so we can take places and we can inject faults and make it think like, oh, God, I've lost a booster, or oh, God, I've lost this battery. And we can see how the actual hardware in the systems integration lab response and how the flight software uh, and the flight computers is able to handle that. And so that's really where we're doing that um, validation and verification. Both are separate activities, but we're doing that there um, in, in, the, in the systems integration lab and some other labs and um, really getting a, a good idea of, of th- you know, making sure we can cover those faults correctly. And so it's, it's cool to work with that actual flight hardware. Um, in there. So. Yeah, that's really exciting. And you guys are, I mean, that's just, I, how many, I wonder how many test runs did you, do you guys go through? Um, Ooh, it do, I mean, we, it yeah. does a lot of testing. Yeah, a lot uh, of testing. It's basically running 24 seven right now. Wow. Almost essentially they do downtime uh, for maintenance to maybe install updates to emula- emulators. Yeah. Um, but uh, they, um, and if you think about it, these components were only designed for one flight, right? You turn it on and it goes, and then that's that. It's done. Right. Whereas these pieces, these pieces of hardware we have, we're running over and over and over and over again. So we got to be careful about making sure that we don't overheat them. Yeah. We keep them in a safe environment that can handle running over and over and over again. Um, and so you know, one test produces a lot of data. I've I don't know. I haven't seen it personally, the, the amount of data. I've heard one test produces a terabyte of data. Wow. And they probably do about 10 tests a day, so 10 terabytes a day, about maybe. Um, in general, the largest pulls that I've done of data might be 50 to 100 gigs of data. Um, a bunch of that data may be pre-launch, so some folks care about that more than others. So maybe mm. I can pull that data and I can snip that part out because I'm more focusing on just the flight. You know, they run maybe T-minus four hours to launch, and that's going to be a lot of data being yeah. produced. 
And if, you got to think it's not just the regular data that we would get on the ground that's being produced in these tests, right? You'll get that telemeter data, but you'll, um, in the lab, we can kind of peek inside of the boxes and see what is actually going on inside. We can kind of snip the wires and see what's going on inside, making sure that the data flowing over, you know, that, that wire is what it should be. Right. And so, um, like I said, they, I think they do about 10 tests a day. I'm not entirely familiar or sure about that. Um, I know the tests that we care about, they maybe do four, three or four a day, but you got to imagine they can crank out all this data, but yeah. somebody's got to look at it. You got to have stuff to analyze it, you know, and you don't want to miss anything. And so that's really where the time, most of your time goes, most of the time goes to that yeah. data analysis. Yeah. Wow. And, um, do you, do you uh, get to watch any of the, the actual flight hardware testing when they're flying it or like the, when they test the capsule? And because because I'm I'm sure after you did the simulator you kind of want to see the actual <laughs> thing happen too and and right. how does does your role play into that at all? Um, not as much. Okay. So more simulations. Yeah, there, there's a lot of uh, so they do have the lab running and mm. you can they you know you can people can be in there and while the lab's running that's okay. But there's nothing moving. You don't see anything right. moving. It's all electronics. But like I said, what's cool is the the wires that they have are flight-like links. So it's the they you know if this wire is going to be 300 feet long, then they have that wire maybe going back and forth for 300 feet. So we test you know make sure that signal makes it over that wire just okay. And so um, nothing's really moving in there. Yeah. Uh, but they do have a. Um, I think they had somebody developed a uh, a model that can run using actually Unreal Game Engine. I don't know if anybody's familiar with that, but um, that's actually like a video game engine. Uh, you know, it's commonly used in video games, but they'll use that sometimes to feed the data through. Um, there's some folks that have their own tools that can run, so you can view on your screen the yeah. what the rocket's doing during the test, or you can go back and play back. Um, you know that takes up some of that amount of time so it's not as useful as just kind of hard looking hard at the data and of course we don't do much with orion either right so that's handled out of johnson space center okay so they're the, right, the right, main right. program manager for that and so that's being tested right now um i believe they sent that uh right up to near glenn and that's going under testing right now and so what instead what happens is we have it looks like a server rack box, if you will. Yeah. Uh, and that's, that's Orion. That's the emulator for Orion. And so it gives us that fake data that makes us think that we're connected. Now, all of this stuff here on the core stage, all of the flight software and mission fault management, we're basically there to provide recommendations to Orion. So we hardly, if ever, take any automated actions. So um, unless something bad is imminent, then we would just, you know, as you would see in a simulation, maybe provide, send a safing, caution, warning to the capsule. The folks in the capsule have to decide what they want to do with that. Right. Now, for the first mission, uh, Artemis 1, there's no crew on board. So that is decided by mission control. Um, now, they have aborts inhibited on the first mission, so... Oh, really? I didn't yes, know that. Yes, yes. So oh. if... if It's just going around the moon, coming back? The first mission... That's what I heard, anyway. 
Yes, that's correct. Okay. Yep, that is correct. So no no humans on board. We're testing out the the capabilities of our spacecraft and the space vehicle there, Orion. And um, so it'll be up to the folks in Orion. They're pretending, you know, they're like the astronauts on board if they want what they want to do right. on there. And so we're providing them the best data we can and the the best recommendations of what you know they should do. But ultimately, it's up to them. Um, on the you know so. On the next flight, you know, there'll be humans on it, astronauts. Right. So they'll, they'll work with Mission Control to determine what they might do in the event of a caution or a warning coming up to them. And so our group also is the, mainly owns and handles most of those caution warnings, aborts, and safings, those four different key things there. Okay. Um, and That's pretty neat. And yeah. Um, um, oh, I had the question. What was it? It was about that. Uh, 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 dang it. I lost it. That's all right. So with all that, though, um, no, we're going to edit this out. I'm going to get that question. That was a really good question. What do I have it as? <laughs> My bad. You're good. We're talking about the simulation. Mm-hmm. Oh, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So a history of systems engineering and doing simulations. That's amazing that we're just putting it through a bunch of computer testing and what you're yeah. doing. because. Yeah. We, I don't think we had that capability, at least in the extent that we do now, right? That's Before right. with Apollo and the shuttle program. We don't. So, so uh, yeah. do you know how that evolved? And like, were we able to even run certain simulations? Probably under very strict computer right. uh, power and memory. Yeah, so they could. each box can do its own checkout, right? So maybe you developed a box that can do certain capabilities. And so I assume back then they were also able to do their own self-checks. And today they're right. able to also. And that you know that's something else to remember with integration and systems engineering is with the systems integration lab the SIL is all these pieces coming together. So maybe a company made this box and it works great at their lab, but does it work fair and nice with all the other boxes? Right. Well, you know that's what we're checking out. And so um, yeah, I mean, what was your question? More of a so did they did. Did you go over any of the history of how they used to do right. it? Right. Okay. And possibly how it evolved to where you where your department is now. Right. So just out of curiosity, because like Apollo and Shuttle, they had a lot of different things to really look into. Right. I yes. Assume. Okay. Yeah. Um. So with uh, Apollo and Shuttle, they did a lot more. Well, with Apollo, I believe they did a lot more testing, actual right. physical testing. Right. And so you know, with that, we've done less actual testing of flights we're doing more of this electronic testing now they didn't have all these electronics digital electronics back then right Right. and so you know there wasn't a a need to for some of that now some of that they did like i said they did the self-checkouts most likely but i have um heard where you know the ibm folks are what designed the flight computer for um the Saturn V, and so they would get the data back from a flight, and it would basically print out on a huge roll of paper, and it would just, they said they would roll it down the hallway, and they would just look line after line, frame after frame of data, and look for anything that would be off, and so what what this was, is this was actually, um, uh, somebody else had posted this this video, they were interviewing this uh, IBM, former IBM engineer who, who lives in town, is a docent, actually, at the oh. Space and Rocket Center. Oh, really? Wow. And uh, it really reminded me of kind of what we do, in a way. Uh, they just had to do it, you know, the manual way, if you looked frame by frame, where we have, like, our um, 
we can look at it frame by frame if we wanted to inside of Excel. But, uh, you know, we have, we have programs that'll, you know, shove it down. And if, the, if it's the same thing over and over again, what we ex or if it's what we expect, then it'll kind of compress that. It'll um, do a data reduction. So, you know, they did do similar things in reviewing the flight data um, with the Paul. They looked at it maybe after the flight, especially something went wrong was we're actively doing this. Um, and so, again, with shuttle, it didn't have as much of these uh, electronics as I believe what's going on SLS. And, um, right. you know, the, the flight computers on uh, shuttle were, you know, the first flight was kilobytes of data. So, right. you know, it's, it's hard to do comparison now. Yeah. Um, they did have similar labs, integration labs, um, and, you know, from what I understand, that's very similar across a bunch of government programs, is that they have these sensitive integration labs where we have the hardware and run it through those tests there on the ground. Yeah. That's interesting. And how it's evolving now. Do you think there's a pro there's probably a pro to physical testing it? But then there's Absolutely. There's probably yeah. cons as well where you can't throw, you can't put it through as many tests. Right. Right. Well, the biggest thing is cost, cost. and time. Yeah. Um, you know, some some groups uh, commercial companies uh, possibly can use more commercial off-the-shelf items. So COTS is what we call that commercial off-the-shelf. And so those would be cheaper to purchase and integrate inside of their rockets. So if they do a flight test and something bad were to happen, it's less money lost than maybe something that was more specialized, right? Right. right. And so um, that's definitely something that we, we have to keep in mind. Now, there's a lot of engineers there that would prefer to do as much testing of the actual hardware, you know, in configuration as possible. So that's interesting. And um, wow, I didn't even know all that that, that, that they're doing over all that in Stennis. I thought they yep. shipped the core stage to um, over here, and I might be wrong. And then and then I saw a video where they actually pressurized yes. it in a blue. Yeah. yeah. Blue so those are structural test articles. Yeah. Structural, yeah okay. Yeah. Okay. Those are structural test articles. So they're very. They're essentially equivalent, um, and they send them here for our structural testing. So we mainly do static testing at Marshall. Okay. So we test the LH2, which is what you're referring to, excuse me, uh, that um, they pr pressurized and then uh, they stressed to uh, failure. They tested to failure. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And that video, it's like, it's like l a little less than a minute, I believe, like 55 seconds. And like you're watching it, it just pops open right. and you're just like what just happened <laughs> right was it wasn't that the rocket they were going to send up? <laughs> no yeah that's that's yeah. just the, the just the test right. right right and so um but they what that test was doing is it was helping our um structural engineers verify that their models were accurate so they can look at the data from actually stressing the core stage to what it would experience in flight then maybe a little bit more than what it could experience in flight and looking at the models and saying, hey, do these match up what we expected? And, you know, for the most part, they do usually. Um, you know, that may be something they're still looking at. But those tests that took place here, so the LH2 test uh, tank took place over several weeks, right? And, in fact, they designed a, a new test stand at Marshall. They built, designed and built the new testing for both the LH2 and the LO2 structural oh, testing. Wow. Um, they were built on top of old 
uh, test stands. So there was already concrete that, you know, was, they said, went all the way to bedrock kind of thing. Yeah. Um, and it can be configured for possible other uses in the future for different maybe rockets. So they, they, that's nice that they kind of have that uh, capability in the future. Um, but uh, they do the, uh, the, those two tests there at Marshall. And then they also do um, the uh, launch vehicle stage adapter, the LVSA. Okay. So yeah. that's a piece that kind of goes between the launch vehicle and um, Orion. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Um, of course, between there you have your ICPS, your interim cryogenic propulsion stage, which is kind of you know the, your second stage in a way. Yeah. But um, it's powered differently though, right? It's 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 different than it's a any different, stage that we've had before. Well, the this this ICPS has flown before okay. on different uh, okay. I think DOD missions. Okay. Um it's got one RL10 engine and uh what they want to do, you know, eventually is replace that with what's called EUS, exploration upper stage, so a more powerful stage at the top. That'll have four RL10 engines. Okay. So you know it'll be more powerful and it'll be able to push more weight um, to to orbit and to the moon. Exciting. But that currently doesn't fit inside of what the SLS Block One configuration we have. Really? Right. So there's different huh. configurations of the SLS. You have the Block One, Block One B, and Block Two, and so each one has its difference and it kind of gets a little bigger and more powerful. Um, you know. They're doing research into uh, making our boosters uh, more lightweight. Of course, these boosters are similar to what was on the space shuttle, except they have an extra segment in them. So instead of five, they have six segments inside okay, of these yeah. boosters. So it's very similar, but um, by block two, that would fit the EUS and, and more cargo, the cargo version of that. Yeah, interesting. And so with all these testing right now, just for you're just working on the flight, part right with the simulations right so yeah. marshall is primarily concerned with the core stage okay. as far as their um, design of ss so that includes like i've mentioned the the main engines so you know they used to be called ssmes but now we'll refer to them as rs25s the right. same thing um the main the mps so your gases you know you have your liquid hydrogen your liquid oxygen and your pressurized helium the helium is used for several different reasons. Um, it pressurizes our tanks. It runs our valves. And so those folks are concerned with looking at that. We have our booster folks also there, Marshall. So essentially from tanking, you know, way before launch to separation. Yeah. And that's what we care about. Once we're separated, yeah. that's that kind of kicks it on over to Johnson with Orion. Okay. Well, it's so uh, – the questions I had for you uh, – you threw me off because of everything. I didn't. I didn't really understand. I guess what you were really doing over there. I'm like, it's so cool what you're doing, though. Right. Putting all Absolutely. the whole SLS through the simulations and making right. sure everything works correctly. And that yeah. is so important. And yeah. I think yours, your position and that whole department right there. Yeah. And everybody doing that. That's that's going to be the main factor in getting us safely back to the moon. And it's it's and definitely it's a team effort. Yes, yeah, and super and important. and we we think about our astronauts. Yeah, you know, every day we work. You know, yeah. we're putting those folks there. You know, who have children, families. You know, and we're putting them on there, and we you know want to provide the best that we can. Yeah. to them, and um, so that's definitely something that we 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 think about in our group. Yeah, and and you know, um, really the entire center does so yeah 
that probably motivates you even more or you're just like it does absolutely you know with that uh abort that the soyuz had about maybe a year ago yeah yeah and so that kind of makes us excited because you know hey it worked their abort worked right nothing bad happened to the folks maybe they got a little bit more roughed up you know on their their abort but uh you know that's that's why we do what we do is is to to make sure that they stay safe at, at all costs yeah well, now i'm going to go a little away from that and ask sure. you uh with the spacex and um uh boeing mm-hmm. uh testing their crew capsules and possibly us america sending astronauts from our soil again right uh, ex- since 2011 yeah. since we ended the shuttle program yeah. exciting times what what do you think about all that and have you kept up to date on that <clears throat> absolutely yeah it's extremely exciting and uh you know i'm i'm really excited to 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 see that happen it's been exciting to see the testing going on um the engineering uh going on the different uh designs um and so i'm i'm really excited to see them go back you know us americans send back americans to the iss on from american soil yeah. you know yeah Did, would your department ever have to work with some of the uh astronauts that, that we might send up to the iss um, our department has not worked directly okay. with any astronauts. Okay. We, what we usually work with is the, uh, crew office okay. over at Johnson and they're kind of like the liaison for the astronauts in deciding these things. Okay. Gotcha. Yeah. Interesting. Wow. Yeah. And, um, um, what inspired you to, uh, work with the space program from an early age? I think a lot of us, um, uh, at the, the space and rocket center where we previously mm-hmm. worked, and you previously worked at the Space and Rocket Center. Right. And um, a lot of people, uh, I was kind of discouraged, discouraged early on because of all the things to get into the space program and work at NASA. Um, right. But obviously, it, you can get encouraged and yeah. keep pushing through. And you did that. What inspired you to work at NASA in the space program? Yeah. Um, well, it's definitely an exciting time uh, for anyone interested in space, I think. Myself, personally, um, when I started off, I grew up here, and so uh, my uh, one of my grandparents worked at NASA. Um, actually, the other one also was a contractor for NASA back during Apollo. Uh, the other uh, one of them was did more of the science kind of side of things. So one thing that people forget about is that NASA actually does a lot. Uh, Marshall does a lot of science here. Also, we have a whole science and technology office, and so um, he mainly did that. So you know. I was always like, well, that's kind of the work that they do out here. And in my head, I was like, you know, it's it's a bunch of more folks on the older side. I wasn't really interested in that. You know, <laughs> yeah. maybe I was more interested in the uh, young, hip, kind of really fast moving. And when I was, you know, first started out, I graduated high school, you know, SpaceX. And I don't even know if they, they were, they had even started yet. You know, I didn't know what it was. So really there was just NASA. So I wasn't even really sure if I wanted to go in space, to be honest, from growing up here. You know, it's, it's oh. one of those things where you're kind of surrounded by it and you don't appreciate it as much. Yeah. Um, and so, which is something why I always enjoy getting other people's perspective, visitors at the Space and Rocket Center, or we have interns there at NASA that come from other places. And they're like, wow, you guys do this stuff? That's so cool. And I step back and I look, you know, it really is. And so that makes me appreciate it more. And so, but going back to, to me personally, I interned uh, as a summer intern at NASA back in 2014. So they have a lot of internships that are semester-long internships. 
um, from undergrad to graduate. They even have high schoolers um, that come in and they can volunteer. And so that's that's really cool. I suggest everybody check that out. They've, they've got some really cool opportunities on there. And so I interned in Guidance Navigation Control, which is actually located kind of in the same um, uh, department as where I'm at now. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Wow. It was, it's actually a couple floors up from where I was. I did that okay. back in 2014. And uh, they handle what you would expect, guidance, navigation, control. And uh, so I worked there. I started there, and I was like, wow, there's all these folks that have very different backgrounds, different ages. You know, um, this person has a degree in electrical engineering. This person, you know, mechanical. This person, aerospace. And, you know, a, a bunch of folks out there even have PhDs. And... Um, there was young people and there was also old people and it was really great great mix it's good to have that experience with also the new folks coming in and so i thought to myself you know this is actually pretty good uh i, I liked it and so um that's kind of what got me into it more and then of course with the the advent of uh the commercial crew comp you know uh and the commercial companies that are involved with the space industry it definitely makes it an exciting time uh, to be involved. And so, um, you know, I wasn't, so growing up, I really wasn't, yeah. space was cool, uh, but it wasn't my, you know, like I wanted to be, you know, involved in any way. And so it kind of turned out, you know, I interned there and I enjoyed it so much that um, I'm back there now. So, and I wouldn't want it any other way. I, I, I love where I work. Yeah. yeah, that is amazing, and I, I think everybody should try at least an internship at NASA and see because it, it's it kind of switched your mind uh, yeah. how you looked at it in a yeah. different perspective. Yeah. Because there are a lot of um, people working in NASA mm -hmm. that are older, which is not a bad thing, but, like, no. yeah. You, yeah, from your perspective and growing up around here, I um, I think that happens a lot where I'm from. Uh, where I'm from the beach, and right. I, I kind of take it for granted. People are like, "Why'd you leave the beach?" Yeah, yeah. And I'm like, "I don't know. I just grew up with it, you know. I right. like the mountains. I haven't been to the mountains till I was 18. I can't imagine. Wow. Yeah, I can't imagine growing up here. Yeah, and like seeing how NASA was and Marshall. Right. And then you actually intern there, and you're like, "Oh, wait a second. Yeah. And like you said, this era is crazy. I mean, that's yeah. what we talk about on the show all the time. Yeah is there's possible space hotels going to be yeah, put up yeah. there artemis yeah. going back to the moon to mars to the asteroid belt right. spacex yeah um and this crew capsules launching from american soil yeah. again yeah um it's an exciting time to get get involved or be interested yeah. in, in in space you know uh i love no matter who it is you know that that wants to be involved these companies or, or folks you know i just I think it's great. It really brings everyone together yeah. as, you know, as a international community, even, you know, it brings everybody closer together. Yeah. And, um, with the going back to the moon, um, do you know the exact outline of the different missions that we're, we're going to be testing first? I know we already talked about right. Artemis one, right. And just going around the moon as a test, yeah. uh, stage. Right. But I remember they had, um, when they announced it, they had a map uh, of the different uh, missions and which one right. is going to do each one. Right. Or what they're going to put out. Yes. Um, yeah, so um, Artemis 1, right, uh, they're sh shooting for 2021. Okay. That's that's the date that they kind of have uh, set. Um, and then uh, Artemis 2 in 2022 time frame. So that'll carry the first man uh, or the or, or the 
first folks that'll go around the moon since Apollo. So that'll carry, uh, you know, uh, astronauts and Orion around the moon and back here. And then uh, 2024 is, you know, what you hear is that's when we want to get boots on the moon. And so um, that'll be the first woman and the next, you know, the next American man back on the moon in 2024. And so that'll be uh, likely Artemis three. Um, and after we get people on the moon, I mean, the objective is to get all the way to Mars. Yes. And building an interplanetary gateway. Yeah. Sorry, the lunar gateway. I keep saying interplanetary gateway. Well, right. I mean, <laughs> so there's a lunar gateway, but we want to get to Mars too. So yeah. it gets a little confusing. Yeah. yeah. So I guess there. Um, yeah. The objective to get to Mars, mm-hmm. uh, where they've set it out, is by 2030s. And uh, curious of your opinion on that and how far advanced uh, or the directive is to get there. Yeah, so they have started, you know, they have a moon to Mars. Okay. It's almost M2M and kind of a little, their little thing. But hmm. um, they have a moon to Mars program that they want to start up. Um, but, uh, you know, a bunch of that is, you know, to be determined. Um, we have what's going on right now is we're going to have, uh, there's folks working on MAV, the Mars Ascent Vehicle. And so what that is is they want to go and retrieve samples from Mars and bring them back here to Earth to be analyzed. And um, so they have a rover that's supposed to land sometime this year that will actually be the rover that goes out and collects those samples. Yeah, that's exciting. Yes. And so then the Mars Ascent vehicle will get to Mars a couple of years from now, I think maybe four or five. It's, a little, it's in the future. And then the rover will bring the samples back, and then it will bring it back here. I think last I saw maybe 2031, 2030s time frame is when we would get those back here to Earth course that's all subject to change right um but uh you know the their big thing they're focusing on first is is the moon and there's a lot of great reasons for that you know it's closer uh three days versus you know nine months yeah <laughs> uh it's a lot easier to prove out all that technology and, and we want to learn to be sustainable too yeah. so that's one of our big things is is going to the moon sustainably and so that's part of that is the lunar gateway so kind of proving this kind of deep outer space, uh, you know, space station in a way. And so that's that's really cool. And so it's kind of a modular thing. They can add and subtract different things to the gateway. Um, they can add maybe a lab. They can add like a, a, you know, different descent element. They can, and so that can be done with international partners and commercial partners. And um, so, the, so that way they can, learn a lot about kind of being more outside of near earth orbit, uh, or, you know, further out than, uh, being, being here. And so we can prove out a lot of technologies that way for a lot cheaper. So it's better that, that we're kind of looking at that, doing that here closer, uh, using the moon. Yeah. That seems, and it seems like more common sense. You need to use the moon before you get to Mars. I mean, that always seems like the objective. And now with the, the view of what you're giving me, uh, giving us Mm -hmm. the overview of it, it's really good. And uh, because I'm now like, Oh, okay. Because it's been 50 years since we've been to the moon. Right. And it was when the first time I always talk about, we said launch Alan Shepard up in outer space. Right. First person up in outer space to go around the earth in a capsule. Or not even go around. He just went up suborbit, and then we got to the moon eight to nine years from that. Right, like that is a crazy jump so fast. We had different right. reasons 
obviously, to try to beat Soviet Union there. But we haven't been back to the moon for 50 years, and that's, like, really crazy. However, yeah. the way you're – the overview and looking at it seems pretty smart. Yeah, I think. Absolutely. And, 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 and because so many things could go wrong with it. and. Mm-hmm. And through your simulations every day and what you work on, I mean, right. you probably see that this even right. the littlest things could go wrong. Right. I think that's what people need to understand that we do need to take this um, at a slower pace just to make sure. Right. And be careful of what we're doing. Absolutely. And and you know, slower pace doesn't have to mean we're slow. Right. Right. As long you know, we can still go at a. a you know, a pretty good pace, I think. I think uh, the only reason I'm saying that, too, is like a lot of pe- people's opinions are that we are going at a slower pace. But it's not necessarily right. true. Right. Um, It takes a while to develop technology for the most hostile environment we know. <laughs> yeah, it so, absolutely does. Yeah. And, you know, like I was saying earlier, we want to make sure we protect, you know, our astronauts that we send out there. Yeah. So by making sure that all this technology works before we do that is extremely important. And, um, you know, by, by doing this, we'll learn new things, we'll fix it for the future, and it'll be that much better. Um, you know, and so I think one of the cool things about going back this time, too, is how we have the CLIPS program. So that's the Commercial Lunar Payload Services program. Oh, I haven't heard about this. So what this is, is we're using commercial uh, companies to send payloads to the surface before we arrive. So basically, when we have when we land there, we'll have, you know, maybe uh, the parts to start building habitat there already, and we'll have, you know, maybe stuff to make a greenhouse or or whatnot. And so that'll allow us to again go sustainably, not just go get some stuff and head back home, but actually live there for a while, right? By using this, and so that's a cool thing. The commercial lunar payload services, so the CLIPS program, that's an ongoing thing. They've announced a couple of awards, I believe, uh, with a couple different companies. So that's something to look forward to, seeing what these companies can send already to the surface, waiting for us there to unpack. Oh, that's exciting. And I, yeah. I heard that, I mean, that's the goal, but I didn't even think about all the commercial companies that will have stakes in that and be yeah. able to send it to Mars. I mean, the Falcon Heavy can already go to Mars. And send payloads to Mars. Yeah, even though they overshot the car, <laughs> and it went around. It was an impressive feat, you know. It was. They were it just was. getting it up there. That was, <laughs> it was impressive. Right, right, right. Um, if you could go to Mars, would you? If they could give you a ticket, and they're like, "Let's go. We need you up there." <laughs> no. Well, if they said they needed me, uh, I yeah? might, I might consider it. But uh, if I if I had a decision, I would stay here. Okay. I definitely think some of the earlier ones are more, you know. The, you know, it'll be unexplored territory, um, and I think once we kind of get more of an established uh, home base kind of there, I would I would consider it, um, but uh, I definitely think uh, uh, I would leave that up to, to some other folks now who, who would want to go. I, I'm, I'm pretty good here supporting every all those endeavors here from Earth. <laughs> hey, that's good. That's good. <laughs> and we need, we need more people here <laughs> right. to do that. Yeah. Um, have you heard of SpaceX's idea of the Mars city and like what they want to do and to send people like one way? Well, I I have heard where they had you know it was like they would be like one way ticket and yeah. kind of, and people signed up. That there was a fake contest that did that uh, a while back. I think it was the Mars One program and the and the guy at least it was a non 
prophet. Right. And he actually was, he seemed pretty serious. Yeah. But uh, they didn't have quite the means necessary to follow through, it yeah. seemed like, or some something like that. But uh, there was a lot of people who were interested, right? Yeah. A lot of people who signed up. Yeah. And so, but um, yeah, I mean, NASA's excited if, if SpaceX wants to go, you know, they're, we're excited to work with them on that. Absolutely. Yeah. NASA is. Yeah. It's interesting. Have you have you gotten to see any of the uh, the Starhopper testing? Yeah, I, I've yeah. I've kept up with that. That's it's a really neat design. Mm -hmm. um, it's really cool uh, engineering method that they have. You know where they were they were doing carbon fiber and they had this huge spindle and it was really expensive. And then they found well this you know stainless steel does better. It's stronger at these cryogenic temperatures, and so that's really cool uh, engineering. And it's cool the testing that they can do with it from the, those materials being relatively inexpensive so they can do these tests and uh yeah i think it's exciting that they have folks working on that it's really neat uh, dylan pulled up um a spacex mars city uh map or a uh design um that doesn't look too bad to live at it doesn't it almost it, <laughs> i'm kind of having a hard time it almost looks like from afar like a roman city <laughs> because of the red but <laughs> yeah you're right yeah kind of kind of out west maybe in some desert area yeah i think i've uh saw on there that they're thinking about having people go there with just different jobs that they need that they need but sending them a mass amounts or a mass amount of people i mean he was talking about like trying to get one million people to mars with his right. starship which is you know pretty wild in what he wants to do but i think the fact that he wants to shoot for <laughs> something so mind-blowing in the time of our technology current technology i think is what's progressing him so fast right considering that <laughs> the reusable rockets and everything it's interesting does. something I, I like noticing or even pointing out in in that the one of those pictures there is you see the pads where the rockets are yeah you know that's something you don't really think about but you, you need to construct a pad here on earth we have nice concrete pads so if we we descend there and you know if we take off again you're going to blow up a lot of dirt right and so we don't we've never done that before and so that's not something i thought about where you know we can just land and take back off from mars but you don't have a nice concrete pad there to do that from. Right. And so see that in that picture, he kind of has some built there to do that. So that's, that's pretty neat. Yeah. And you're probably going to need it far away from the habitat, which is kind of interesting because it could blow up or even, or blow a lot of the dirt, like you're saying, or right. even potentially if they miss the <laughs> launch pad, which would be well devastating. And, and something else I had uh, heard was that their um, uh, starship would not have abort capabilities. Really? Yeah, so it wouldn't have a way. It would be kind of similar to shuttle in that fashion. It wouldn't be, you know, shuttle sat on the side, so that presented its own problems, whereas this sits on top. But um, they don't have abort capabilities built in as of yet, and so I don't, I don't think they will. And, again, that's a decision where I think they saw that by adding an abort capability, that adds complexity and, and cost. So, you know, that's going to be a risk. That, that That's risky, though. It, it is. And so, you know, I'm not sure if NASA would ever want to put anybody on a yeah. craft like that without extensive analysis and testing maybe ahead of time. Yeah. So Well, that's interesting to look at because may, that might be one of uh, uh, SpaceX's barriers of entry to get people to Mars because like, no, 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 you need to abort because yeah. we want people to be safe. You yeah. Know? That's, yeah. That's people have said they, they're like, well, if they prove themselves over several flights without incidents or, you know, maybe a recoverable incident, 
then you know they would be willing to but yeah it's it, and then that's again a part of the the cost is that they can do so many and build so many and if stuff happens and they can just keep testing and testing kind of prove through kind of those tests the capabilities and it's it's um you know uh effectiveness at its yeah its job if but you that, will i i now kind of think about that more because i mean all of our airplanes have not board system. Well, kind of like a board system, right? Well, I mean, they have people would compare, compare it to airplanes in that uh -huh. airplanes fly thousands and thousands of hours. Right. And so, you know, they don't have issues. Or if they do, then they're able, an engine they can shut down and still make it. This is a lot more high risk. But again, if it flew thousands and thousands of hours like right. airplanes, all right, you know, hop, strap me in. So that's true. That's true. I just, I just see that like, you know, I, I, every now and then we have an airplane that goes down. And it's just like, well, when the first one goes down, it's going to happen eventually. I, I would hope not, but right. if we have that many spacecraft out there and one goes down. Yeah. I guess at that point though, it'd be similar to now where we don't really look at that. And there's thousands of thousands of hours of flight. Right. And that's like, eh. yeah, that's definitely a way to look at it. Yeah. How, yeah. however they want to categorize, categorize risk and that can be done several ways. Yeah. And that's, that's folks other than me do that. But, uh, yeah. 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 One trip uh, to Mars and back will be thousands and thousands of hours. So, I mean. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I want to see it making through our uh, our atmosphere a couple couple more times than just the yeah. once okay. in and okay. out. <laughs> making it to Mars, and you probably have to concern about the or have uh, to do and think about this more. It's, it's three to nine months to get to Mars? Yeah. I thought it was three to six, but uh, for well, current technology. I thought six was the minimum. I can look yeah, this up. I, I, oh, okay. I, it, currently I think it's six to nine-ish. Okay. You know, it depends on where it's at in the orbit. Right. And Because right. uh, every two years it aligns with Earth. Right. And yeah. so the the doing those orbital mechanics, and so it may take longer or, or not there, as long. Is there any talk about how they could speed that up that you know of? Well, so payloads can get there faster than that. Right. Because they can speed up and handle that. Right. And so... I don't. I, I'm not entirely sure if we would be able to. And, and plus, they're lighter weight, so being able to send humans along with the stuff to sustain them is just so much weight. I'm not sure how we would be able to speed that up. Yeah. Um. You know, a lot of science right now is more focused less on human spaceflight, more on um, sending you know like probes out into space that can go, you know, for for a long long time right right you know using ion propulsion or there's a solar sails kind of thing going on uh so i'm not sure how yeah they would get to um there faster right between 150 to 300 days depending on the speed of launch right yeah okay um that's interesting but we yeah. could potentially send them faster since we you said we send payloads faster. But that's risky in its, a, it's a, in its own way. Right, yeah. See, depending on the speed of the launch. Yeah. So can your payload handle <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> can the humans handle it? Well, yeah, I don't know. I wonder how much testing they've done with that. <laughs> but, yeah, no, I'm not sure. Yeah. You know, people really prefer their payloads to make it safely. So Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But who knows, you know, SpaceX does a lot of testing and they may try and push the limits somewhat on it. Of course, you know, we're, we're limited by the propulsion technology that we have too. So, uh, yeah. you know, the current propulsion and engines that we have. Yeah. After the RS-25s, uh, um, 
what are the type of engines that we're going to put on the bottom? Uh, so they'll they'll it'll remain ours twenty fives. Oh, okay. Yeah, so they have some left over. Yeah, they right, have some that they're using, and they'll then they're going to continue to build. Uh, they will improve upon the design. Um, they will reduce the number of components required to be on the inside of them, and uh, um, use the additive manufacturing or like three D printing to try and. Uh, uh, you know, streamline it, the making those a little bit more. So it'll reduce the number of parts, reduce the number, the, the cost is the plan. Okay. And I hear the 3D printing thing is going to be very, very awesome with yes. saving a lot of uh, money and making things efficient. Absolutely. I didn't even realize with the engines, but I mean, I even yep. heard about on the Lunar Gateway, mm-hmm. they're going to have 3D printers. Yeah, yeah. We, have, we have one, uh, I believe, on the ISS already oh, okay yes and so they sent up a payload within this last year that would actually because the thing is you know you print it but what if you're done with it right we'll, we'll see about recycling it and they sent up a payload and i don't remember the name off the top of my head but it would basically take the 3d printed part and build put it back down into to new raw material and so they test that out uh, and i believe they're still testing out if they're not done yet uh that on the ISS. yeah right that's now. exciting uh, so something that I just pulled up was this, um, the 3D printer, something you don't think about is just like it, there is a 3D printer on the ISS. Yeah. Apparently it's been there since 2014, but they they're obviously got it to now where they can tear down the raw materials. But the 3D printer has to print in zero gravity. That is not something that we had to think about here on Earth. Like they have to, it has to build all these little stems that keep it stable and be able to print in microgravity like that's not something you can't how do you even begin to manufacture something like that on earth like how do you begin to think about how that's going to work yeah you can't really test that uh here on earth yeah no (laughs) hey that's that's why that's one of those great things about having the space station up there yeah but also i mean you could do that in simulations well, no, probably not with a 3D. You probably want the 3D printer to actually work first and then they're, send it they're, up. They're, right. I mean, you could do some probably some engineering and try and figure out what you need, which I'm sure they did before they sent it up there with yeah. building up the supports kind of around. And yeah. and uh, those are cheap enough to send up there and, and yeah. kind of test it out too. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Well, Nathan Rigby, this has been amazing. I think we can uh, wrap it up there unless you have any other information you'd want to share. I think uh, you gave us such a great overview of what's happening with the space program right now. I want I appreciate that. Yeah. I want to thank you for your job because you are working on the safety. I mean, the simulations and what goes into it and the safety of what's going to go right. about uh, getting people to the moon, yeah. which is amazing. And, yeah. the, and everything you told me really helped shape my overview and perspective on it because you can read about watch other videos yeah. but when you talk to somebody and they put and they really teach and tell you more about it because it's all new i mean the right. artemis the art, whole artemis thing was just announced this past year right or they changed it to right the, the, artemis name, program. the name yeah absolutely so, yeah, yeah i really just um you know there is a lot of information already out there you know if you go to nasa.gov and they have a sls site that has a bunch of fact sheets okay uh, a lot of cool stuff um some videos they recently got uh, one of the actors from uh star wars to narrate a video on their youtube channel yeah and it's got a really great uh overview of the lunar gateway and our plan to get to the moon highly recommend going and looking at that on the nasa has that on youtube um, so that's a, a got great graphics too, um, you know, and uh, and uh, other you know most other than that, yeah, it's, yeah. 
Yeah. I well, just hope that one of our Artemis missions is to go to the moon and uh, jumpstart one of the rovers. <laughs> <laughs> oh, one of the rovers from Apollo and yes. we'll like use all three of them because we can like reuse them potentially. Yes. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I'm not so sure how close we're getting. You know, that's yeah. It's one of the things about the gateway, though, is it'll allow us to access more than just the equator of the moon. Right. Which the Apollo was kind of restricted to, the Apollo program. So this will allow us to kind of get anywhere on the moon. Right. And we're really shooting for the South Pole for that water ice possibility there. That's what I heard. And so they, they have, they can look and see which places are permanently in shadow, which are those areas that I believe they're more likely to have that ice water. Interesting. Yeah. And we'll be developing technologies to extract it. Exactly. Most yeah. likely. I wonder I wonder if they would even touch the any of the Apollo sites because technically they're historical at this point where yeah, they're probably they, like, eh, I don't want to yeah, mess with that. I know any any uh payloads that go around the moon or that they're gonna NASA's like keep away from Apollo site, you know. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. So, so they're already considering that. Yeah, I think yeah. um, you know, because they've purposely uh had uh, some satellites that were done kind of around moon, uh, particularly one called Laddie, uh, crashed into the moon. Uh, you know, it had it needed to be far away from that. So, right. Yeah. Right. Well. So well, thank you so much for coming on, sir. Yeah, absolutely. I appreciate it. Yeah. And uh, stay tuned. We're gonna have some more guests on, and maybe maybe Rigby will come back when uh, I don't know hey, when yeah, when Artemis is launched. Yeah. And then we'll, you could tell us more about that. Absolutely, it'll be exciting <laughs> times. Looking forward yeah. to it.